0: Well, having just walked through the Easter season and celebrating Gems Sunday last week, this week we're going to begin a new sermon series, and the talk this morning, the sermon this morning, is going to be an introduction to that. But before we even dive into that, let me kind of give you a little bit of a background from where this is coming from. Uh, This Monday, as elders, having made the family visitations this year of the third of the congregation that we committed ourselves to going to, we sat and we kind of asked the question, what did we hear? What things are being talked about in our congregation? And of the many things that we mentioned, one of them was how several of the conversations went into the areas of growing concerns over our society and where it is headed And that impact in not only the the world, but in the church. The reality of the fact that behaviors that were unimaginable not all that long ago are now literally being celebrated. And rather than obedience to God's word, there are things where we are being told that in order to thrive, and in order to find joy in life, we must live in rebellion to God's word. And again, it's not just that those things are happening out there in some distant land and we're hearing about foreign things, but it's getting close to us. Those ideas are impacting our denomination and our church in general. They're impacting our homes. And in the face of those issues, we ask big questions. How do we respond? What are we to do? Has God abandoned us or is he abandoning us? And and where is he in these moments as it seems like culture is drifting away from him? Well, it is in some ways part of responding to that. That was a bit of an impetus for the sermon series that we are going to be looking at. Uh, To introduce it, this morning we're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 18, looking at the end of the chapter in verses 29 through 34. The words will be on the screen, but I'm going to make references to parts of the text before what we read, and so it might be a good idea to go ahead once again and pull out your pew Bibles, the text can be found there on page number 351. Again, page 351 of your Pew Bibles, we're going to be reading 1 Kings 16 verses 29 through 34. In the 38th year of King Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians and went and served Baal and worshiped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if we're going to understand what we just read, we've got to start by giving a bit of historical context so that you understand where we are in history and what is going on when Ahab becomes king of the kingdom of Israel. So backing up, the book of 1 Kings begins in chapter 1 by telling the story of the death of David, king of Israel, and how his son Solomon takes over the throne. And for the first many chapters, we hear of the reign of Solomon and how it was a a time during his reign of expanding the borders of the kingdom, a time of great wealth and prosperity, how Solomon built his palace in Jerusalem, the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, how his wisdom reigned, but by the end of his reign, we also hear of his wandering from the Lord. Well, after Solomon dies in 1 Kings 12, we learn that many people approached his son who became king, Rehoboam, and they asked Rehoboam, would you lighten the burden that your father put on us? The taxes under Solomon were much. The forced labor that was used to build the many things that he had built was oppressive to the people. And they asked Rehoboam, now their king, Solomon's son, to lighten that burden. But Rehoboam's response was to say that he was not going to lighten the burden, but he was going to increase it. And in response to that, the nation divided. No longer was it the twelve tribes together under one king, but they split into two different kingdoms. The kingdom, this is a map, and I know it's going to be hard for most to even see. But this is Israel, and during the division of the kingdom, you had in the south the kingdom of Judah. Two of the tribes, where their capital was still Jerusalem, and throughout time, according to the promise of God, they always had on their throne a descendant of David throughout history. The northern tribes of Israel, the larger group of ten tribes, well, their kings were not nearly as stable or as regular. And in many ways, the chapter that we just concluded, chapter 16 of 1 Kings, epitomizes much of the struggle. Throughout that chapter, five kings and their kingdoms are briefly mentioned. It starts with the King Baasha. King Baasha took his throne when he assassinated his predecessor, killing off his entire family so that he could set up his own reign. Baasha was king in Israel for 24 years, and after he died, his son, Elah, took over. Elah only was on the throne in Israel for two years. And after those two years, he was assassinated by a man named Zimri who took over the throne from him. And because uh, Elah's father, Baasha, had murdered the entire clan of his predecessor, Zimri did the exact same thing to the entire family of Baasha, killing all of his sons and all of his relatives so that Zimri could take the throne. And he took it for a total of seven days. He was on the throne for seven days, but there was a lot of opposition to him and pressure. And when that pressure was felt, he ran into the palace, setting it on fire and killing himself in the process. And so now there were two different men who wanted to take over Zimri's plot and become king. And there was Omri and there was Tishbi, uh, Tibni. And Omri won out, and so he became king. And he reigned for six years. And then, as we read in our text, after the six years of the reign of Omri, his son Ahab ruled for 22 years. Specifically, we are now talking about 874 to 853 BC, or about 100 years after the reign of Solomon, and about 150 years after, before the fall of Israel. So, five kings from three different families, many with short reign. It was a great period of lack of stability and trial and struggle. But, by the time we get to Ahab, if you had just a secular historian looking at the circumstances of Israel, they would say that this was a time that was really good in Israel. Ahab's father, Omri, only reigned for six years. But in those six years, he did a lot for the nation. Uh, First of all, he expanded the territory of the land. Amri built a whole new having the previous one been burnt down he built a whole new palace and a brand new capital in Israel establishing the city of Samaria as the place where he would live and and reign He reigned or his reign started a period of stabilization For the next hundred years, descendants of Omri would continue to be on the throne, which was especially important given all of the turmoil from the previous generations and kings. It brought a lot of stability, in fact, to the point where we have uh, documents from around the period at that time that referred not to the land of Israel, but to the land of Omri, because he was so well-established. And then, as we read in our text, in marrying his son Ahab to the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, he formed a really beneficial alliance. On this particular map, it stops in the north uh, with the city of Tyre. But just above that city is the city of Sidon. Uh, Tyre and Sidon were really important cities in the Phoenician Empire. And they were so important because they were port cities. And what happens in marrying the daughter of this Phoenician king to the king in Israel, it brought a wonderfully prosperous alliance. The Phoenicians had access now to all of the interior land of the Israelites where crops were grown and animals raised And Israel had much greater access to the ports in the Mediterranean Sea, allowing for greater trade routes. And not only that, but their alliance cut off some of these other kingdoms of the Syrians and the Ammonites from getting access to those important uh, ports as well. They controlled a lot of those trade routes and the trade. And so when you look at this time in history from just a historical perspective, if you were simply a historian, you would say this was a wonderfully prosperous time in the land of Israel. They were economically booming. There was stability in their leadership. And many would say this is good But that's not the viewpoint of the scriptures. You see, the Bible doesn't evaluate the health of a nation based on economic prosperity. It doesn't evaluate how well the kings were ruling based on their GDP growth or on their stability in their reign. Instead, it evaluated the leadership in Israel based on their call to be in a covenant relationship with God to be a light to the nations around them and to live in obedience to God's commands in such ways that it drew those other nations into a desired relationship with God. And it was on that level that they were being judged. Which, by the way, I think is an important reminder to us as well. That just because we might see economic prosperity... Just because we might like whoever is leading in whatever position in politics, just because we feel peace in the land does not mean that things are necessarily going well. That is not the area where evaluation should be made. Evaluation is on our relationship with the Lord. And in opposition to what historians might say or decree about this particular time in Israel, the evaluation from our text makes it clear that this was not a good time in Israel's history. Before what we read in in briefly describing that six-year reign of Omri, in verse 25 of chapter 16, it says, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord And did more evil than all who were before him. He was the worst king yet. Says the scriptures. And yet, as evil as his father Omri had been, by the time we get to Ahab, we learn that he quickly took that title from his father. Verse thirty says, "And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him." In a case that wasn't clear enough, we are told in verse 33, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So why, during this economically prosperous time, would the Bible say that he was evil? Well, Let's look at some of the summaries. First of all, with this marriage to Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, although it was politically and economically shrewd and an effective move in the financial way, it was spiritually disastrous. The Israelites in general had been told that as a part of their relationship with God, they were not to intermarry with people from the other nations The reason for that being that when they married people of other nations, they would be drawn toward worshiping the gods of those nations. And that concern and the fruit that it bore is epitomized in the person of Jezebel. Jezebel, the wicked queen, draws Ahab into the religion of the Sidonians. While the Phoenicians were a polytheistic nation, meaning that they worshipped a whole bunch of different gods, their main gods were especially the god Baal. Baal was worshipped as the storm god. He was the god that brought the rains that would nourish the crops and provide for the crops to grow, so he was also seen as a fertility god. If you wanted your crops to thrive, if you wanted rain to be provided for the region, then you worshiped Baal and he was the one that would bring those rains. But the name of Baal then gets repeated like a drumbeat throughout the text. We are told that Ahab went and served Baal and worshiped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built. In Samaria. In addition to this, Ahab also made an Asherah, which is another idol, the, an idol to the female goddess of the Phoenicians, the goddess of fertility, the, the queen of the goddesses. And so they would worship her as well. And in seeing that repetition and the progression of how the, this house was in the very capital that Omri had built, What we realize is that things are getting so much worse in israel jeroboam was the first king in those northern tribes of israel and when he became king he didn't want his people continuing to go down to jerusalem in order to worship god at the temple and so in opposition to that he set up his own worship centers making idols that were bulls in the south of Israel and in the north of Israel so people could worship God in the image of those bulls at those centers of worship instead. Obviously, this was in violation of the commandment that you shall make no images uh, in the likeness of God and worship him. And that is why Jeroboam is referred to. And then throughout time, what the people did is became more and more synchronistic. They would worship God, but they would also worship alongside the idols of the other nations. It was sort of a cover-all-your-bases approach so that you could make all of the gods happy. And all of them were seen on the same level, and they were worshiping God with, alongside of, these other gods. But now, setting up a house for Baal in the very capital of the city, we see that we are taking another step. Where rather than worshipping Baal alongside God, we are worshipping Baal instead of worshipping God. This is now becoming the official state religion. They are no longer the servants of the Lord, but they are Baal worshippers by decree and leading from the king. If that were not enough, we learn in this simple story from verse 34 of what the era of Ahab was like. In the first sentence of verse 34, all of a sudden we have this radical change in scene and we learn that in his, in Ahab's days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. Jericho. Now, once again, when you look at the map of Israel, you can see Jericho in the southern boundary there, just above the Dead Sea. Again, from a political standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. This city that had been laying in rubble for now about 500 years, it's positioned at a wonderful place where if you have a a fortress there, a defensive territory... You can defend against all of those nations to the east. At any time, they would try to cross over the Jordan River and attack your land. And you could defend against the nations to the south. At this time, the nations between Israel and Judah were often at war with one another. And so if you have this defensive city set up on the boundary, well, you are able to protect yourself. And so again, if you remove yourself from Scripture... This seems like a a good and a wise move politically. However, if you are engaging scripture, you would know immediately what the problem is. Jericho, again, as I mentioned, was the first city that God had destroyed when the people entered the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. Joshua. After marching around the city in silence for six days, then on the seventh day after they marched around seven times and the trumpets were blown, the walls of the city fell down and God had given them this important city as a gift, as a token of the fact that he was giving them this land. And in memorial of that, Joshua said that the land should remain in rubble. In Joshua six twenty six specifically, it says, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up the gates. And so... When we get to First Kings 16, and Haiel, we learn that this is exactly what happens. The curse is fulfilled. Verse 34 continues where we left off. It says, "Hael laid its foundations at the cost of Abriam, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sugub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, The son of none. What had been warned of five hundred years earlier came to pass, not just in a vague reality, but with the names of the boys who lost their lives. The question is why? Why would Hiel do this? Well, some suggest that this is an indication that the worship of the foreign idols had gotten so bad. That in devotion to these idols, Hiel had intentionally sacrificed his sons when he rebuilt this city. My own opinion is that's taking it a bit too far based on the evidence and that this was the judgment of God and not the practice of Hiel. And so I lean toward one of two other options. A second option is that Hiel never knew about the curse. That the word of God had grown so distant from the people of Israel that they were ignorant. They did not know of the fact that God had instructed them to live in a certain way and had warned them about certain behaviors. And in his ignorance, Hiel moved forward and then he walked right into the curse of God, losing his sons. Or, what is potentially worse... Ha'el did know. He had heard the risk, but he didn't believe that it would actually happen or care if it did. It was a choice to disregard God's command. It was an old story from 500 years ago. It was meant for those people way back then. What relevance does it have to him today? It didn't any longer apply, so why not rebuild this city But that's why most people think this story is here it's there to illustrate and to epitomize exactly what this period under the rule of ahab looked like as one commentator put it open defiance to the lord's word typified abraham's regime and since that was the case i'm sure That if there were faithful Israelites around at that time, they started asking important questions very similar to the ones we ask. What are we to do? How are we to respond? Has God abandoned us? What will meet the need of the day? And if the problem, as we identified, is a lack of knowledge of or application of or respect for the word of the Lord, what was needed was a prophet. Someone who would come and remind the people of the word of the Lord, to call them back to repentance and faithfulness, to remind the people of both the promises of God made in that word and the warnings that he had given in that word, to remind them that those words were still important for them and that they needed to be known and that they needed to be lived out. And that's what's going to happen. In what had been, for the most part, a book that just highlights the work of the kings and summarized their reign, evaluating their wars and their buildings and their projects, all of a sudden, the pace of the book of 1 Kings into 2 Kings slows down substantially during the reign of Ahab. And in this most wicked of times, God raises up a prophet After a quick description of many kings, the pace slows down, and we meet the person and the work of Elijah, a prophet that shows up. And in watching Elijah through this sermon series, we're going to see that even though evil had taken the throne in Israel, evil did not reign. God still knew what was going on, God was the one who was still king over Israel, and he was in control of all things, and he was not going to allow the gods of the nations to replace him in the hearts of his people. And so what this sermon series is going to do and focus on is on the need for a prophet. We will learn about what a prophet was and what a prophet did by looking at the work of Elijah and then his uh, follower, uh, Elisha, and how that work addressed the need of this time of apostasy and rebellion. But before all of that, even in this introduction, I think there are some important words that we need to be listening to and hearing from this text. Again, I think we can relate to the problem of the day of Ahab. The main issue was that the word of God was either forgotten or willfully rejected and neglected. And that certainly is the case for our world today. People either have forgotten about the promises of the words of God and his warnings that are found in scripture, or they know them But they don't think that they apply to us any longer. That they are warnings and directions written for a different day and age. And we are free to just ignore them because it doesn't any longer apply to us. And so they openly rebel against them. And then we experience the consequences of that. Because God's law, his word, is a path toward life and blessing. When we ignore that word, we do so at our own peril. There are always consequences for disobeying God. But what is the answer to that? The answer is we need to get back into God's word. And yes, we certainly hope and we pray that this would be the case for those who have, like Ahab, political power and influence and hold positions of authority and make the laws of our land. We hope and we pray that this would be the case in our schools, in our colleges and universities, where they would be reengaging in God's word and see the wisdom that is found in there in directing our lives. We do hope and pray that our culture would turn to God and find the truth of his word to be the guide that it is rather than promoting things that are in contradiction to God's word. But let me say clearly, if that is our hopes, and our prayers, and a desire for our culture, what does that say about our prayers and hopes for us? What should we expect from believers? What should be expectations for ourselves? Because it's really easy to point at and identify the problems in our culture, but what about in our own hearts? Were you aware of the curse of Joshua in rebuilding the city of Jericho? Do you know the Bible's teachings on lying, on adultery, on drunkenness, on how to treat the poor? And if you do know, are you living in accordance with that? Are you applying those teachings to the way that you handle all of those things in your life? If we are going to complain that the Ten Commandments have been taken out of the courthouses in the United States, do you know the Ten Commandments? If we are going to complain that prayer has been removed from the schools, what does prayer look like in your home It has to start here, and it has to start with us. We, the church, are called to be salt and light in this world. We are supposed to be the ones that the world can look to and say, why are they being blessed, and why do their lives go so well? What they have is what I want. Is that what they see in and among us? Or do they see people that look very much like they look, make decisions very much like they make, and follow in with the culture of the world? If we want change for our world, it must start with us. And as much as the theme of getting in God's word have been repeated from this pulpit over and over again, has it yet made a difference are you engaging in Scripture, learning it, and applying it? Because if we're not, we can't point fingers at other people. But we also see in this text words of hope. The words of hope that even though evil took the throne in Israel, God was still in control. He did not abandon his people he did not leave them though they were unfaithful to their covenant promises he forever was faithful. And he did send a prophet. He did point them back to his word and how the people responded was up to them but God was faithful in sending his messenger. And as much as we celebrate for that old test that actions in the Old Testament we have seen how in a broken world God has sent the prophet, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth. We have seen how he lived a perfectly faithful life. And how he gave his life as a sacrifice for us sinners. And how he rose from the grave promising new hope and new life to us. Victory over the sins that plague us. And he sent his spirit when he ascended. Not only giving us his word but guiding us with the ongoing presence of the spirit in our lives. So we could know and interpret that word and be victorious over sin. Having known that victory through Jesus Christ. Oughtn't we do all that we can to live for him and to be that light, to be that salt in a world that is still dark, looking for hope that we have been granted in Christ? Dark times have come in the past. Dark times will can come again. But for us and for our society, we claim that God's word is the path to life and blessings. If that is true then we, above all people, need to be sure that we know and are applying that word to our lives so that we might be a light to this hurting world. Toward that end, let's have a word of prayer. Lord God and Heavenly Father, it is easy for us to look back and identify the problems and the issues in the nation of Israel under the reign of Ahab How in disobeying your word, he walked into trials and struggles, not only for himself, but for others in the nation, and how they bore the consequences of violating your commandments. And again, we look at our world, and we see where many are wandering, and we see how we are bearing many of the consequences from those choices. Lord, from just a wisdom perspective, I pray that we would learn to trust your word, that we would learn from the mistakes of the past and we would be able to seek you more heartedly and be wise in not repeating those mistakes. But more importantly, we thank you for your son. We thank you for rescuing us. We thank you for giving us a whole new name and a new identity and relationship in you. And I pray that your church would be your people, that we would be salt and light in this dark and hurting world, and where many others are also asking questions about what is going on and where do we find direction and hope i pray that we through our actions and through our words would point them to the hope that we have in you and so again this morning may this be an opportunity to rededicate ourselves to an appreciation for your word to both knowing it and applying it to our lives lord that we give ourselves to you because you gave all that you were for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.